I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about the movie The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which is a 1947 drama comedy starring Gene Tierney, Rex Harrison, Natalie Wood, George Saunders. It's directed by Joseph uh, L. Mankiewicz, who also directed All About Eve, uh, Cleopatra, People Will Talk, which I can't remember if we talked about this when we did All About Eve, but we should add People Will Talk to our list of movies to watch. And he also directed Guys and Dolls. The movie was written by Philip Dunn and R.A. Dick, who also wrote the, the novel that the movie is based on. There is eventually a TV series that was based on the movie. The music is by Bernard Herman, who also did the music for Citizen Kane, Psycho, and Taxi Driver. The movie The Ghost of Mrs. Muir is the story of a widow who moves with her daughter to a house by the seaside. The house is haunted, but that doesn't really bother Mrs. Muir, who over the course of about a year forms a bond with the ghost of the sea captain, Greg. Repartee and romance ensue. Um, I do ensue. So many things ensue. So, um, do you have any trivia about this movie, Emily? I do. There was not a lot, but I have a couple little things. Um, you might already know this, but the word Muir, uh, is Gaelic for the sea. So she's basically Mrs. C. I think it was like a little play on words because a lot of sailors say that they're married to the sea and clearly the captain wanted to be married to... Mrs. Muir. Oh, um, that's snazzy. <laughs> Sneaky. It was supposed to be set on the English coast, and it was mostly English actors, but the film was totally shot in California along the central Pacific coastline, um, which I think that you can tell a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, like, it didn't look like England to me, at least in the coastal parts. So. Yeah. It didn't look like Hollywood. Hollywood. I thought this was interesting. Originally, Gene Tierney tried to play the role as, like, like a screwball role. Really? And, yeah. And then the director was like, no, this isn't working after a couple days of shooting. And they went back and reshot, and she gave this character, like, more depth and seriousness and then she got a lot of critical acclaim for the role so i can't really imagine it being more screwy i like the way she did it yeah there's like just enough comedy but not too much yeah so you probably noticed that natalie wood plays her daughter Uh and when her daughter's younger And apparently norma shearer claudette colbert and olivia de havilland were all considered for that role really not yes wait that natalie that natalie wood played or for that jean oh, no that the that the mother played oh, okay i was gonna say wait what <laughs> no i was like that doesn't make sense age watch yes yeah. so all of those actresses were considered for uh jean tierney's role Huh. So, I don't know. I kind of could see Olivia de Havilland doing it, but I don't know about the other two. I mean, I could see. I mean, they're all sort of, they're all, they seem like similarly able to do comedy, but also with, bring a sense of seriousness. 
I don't know. I feel like having just seen the women, I have an, an appreciation for Norma Shearer's ability to be sort of funny, but also serious. Yeah, she's pretty great. Um, <laughs> We're and fans. Then, this I didn't know, but in 1990, there were serious talks about remaking the movie with Sean Connery and Michelle Pfeiffer. What? fell through. I know. I was like, that would be... I, yay, Sean Connery, but I don't know about that. I, I like this version. Yeah, it would just have been a terrible movie, probably. <laughs> yes. And I kind of like how they did... The, the ghost effects in this old version, but I bet they would have, like, totally messed it up Mm -hmm. in a more modern version and just made it ridiculous. Well, and, like, around that time is when the movie Ghost came out, right? That had Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Is Demi Moore the woman in it? Yes. Which I have not seen. It seems, like, similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Although, like, this movie was, like, a lot of repressed passion, and, and Ghost is, like... Very <laughs> full on <sexual>. passion. Yeah, full, <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I don't know how this. I mean, I enjoy a nice like repressed romance. But I don't know <laughs> if that would hold up for modern audiences. Yeah. Um. So that's all I got. But yeah, there there wasn't a lot for this movie. I was surprised. Hmm. I think I feel like this is one of those movies that's famous, but not like a a grade. I don't know. Gene Tierney, who was referred to as by Martin Scorsese as the most underrated a- actress of the 1940s. Oh. Yeah. I feel like it's very appropriate for this movie, even though it got a lot of acclaim, but it, it feels like it's not one of the movies that's in, like, in the canon. Yeah. I agree. I I think I only came across it by chance when I was younger. But ever since then, semi-obsessed. That's right. <laughs> I thought that Gene Tierney and Rex Harrison had good chemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there at the beginning, I I thought it was it was a sort of an odd pairing, but you know, as they got into it, it seemed more appropriate. Yeah. Um, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Jean Tierney? Sure. So Jean Eliza Tierney was born in 1920 in Brooklyn. Uh, her name is spelled in a masculine way because she was named after a beloved uncle who had died young. Um, she was raised in wealthy Westport, Connecticut, and subsequently attended um, some fancy schools in Connecticut and also in France. Um, On a family trip to the West Coast, she visited Warner Brothers, where one of her cousins worked as a producer of historical short films. Uh, One of the directors was really taken by her beauty. She was only 17 years old at the time and told her she should become an actress, Um, and apparently Warner Brothers even wanted to sign her to a contract, but her parents advised against it because of the relatively low salary. They were hoping she would move into a higher social position. What? Uh, So it wasn't like, hey, maybe you should stay in school? No, they just wanted her to be, like, more socially, I don't know, (laughs) fancy. She She did have her own society debut the following year, she was really insistent that she wanted to be an actor, and her father said, you know, if she wants to be an actor, it needs to be actually in the legitimate theater. So she studied acting in Greenwich Village and eventually appeared on Broadway. Um, and in order to support her career, her father set up a corporation called Bell Tier, and then 
1939, Columbia signed her to a six-month contract for which she did not appear in anything. She was actually initially considered for the lead role in National Velvet, which Elizabeth Taylor ended up getting. Yeah, but the production was delayed and she that deal fell through um, and she went back to Broadway and then um, appeared in the play The Male Animal, um, and Daryl F. Zanuck, who was the head at the time of 20th Century Fox, this is the story, he was in the audience, and during the performance, he turned to his assistant and said, like, hey, take down this actress's name. And then later at later that night, he went by the Stork Club, where he saw a young lady on the dance floor, and he said to his assistant, forget the girl in the play, I, w- I want you to assign this girl who's dancing. And the story is, the girl who's dancing was also Jean Tierney. Um, what? Yes. And, like, apparently it really was her. And she said, you know, her, like, her quote about the whole story was that she, like, throughout her career she had several different looks. And this was just, like, one instance of that. Even though it was on the same night. Um, <laughs> I know. They find that... Are you, that sounds like apocryphal. Apocryphal, yes. Yes, <laughs> but but you know what? I mean, if she says it's true, I'm not going right. to doubt Jean Tierney's word. That's right. So she signed to 20th Century Fox. Um, her motion picture debut was in a supporting role in Fritz Lang's western, The Return of Frank James. Um, she went on to play a variety of roles in comedies and um, received a Best Actress for her role in Leave Her to Heaven, which came out in 1945, and she continued to act throughout the 1940s and 50s, but was in the meantime dealing with episodes of manic depression that meant that she, like, was sort of in and out of a couple of institutions. She was seeing a psychiatrist, um, and one of the institutions she went to gave her 27 shock treatments, and which was traumatic, and she tried to flee, yes. the, <laughs> she tried to flee, they caught her, and, like, reinstitutionalized her. She, like, later in her life became an outspoken opponent of shock therapy treatment, claiming that it had destroyed, like, significant parts of her memory, which is wow. horrifying. That's insane! Yes. In 19, at the end of 1957, she stepped out onto the ledge of a window of her mother's Manhattan apartment, which was 14 stories above ground, um, and stayed there for about 20 minutes, which, you know, is considered a suicide attempt. You know, they got her back in, and she was sent to a clinic in Kansas, and... After about a year, she got a job working as a sales girl in a Kansas dress shop, um, hoping to just, like, live a normal life, but a customer recognized her, and that set off, you know, a scandal. This this is so sad. I know. It's so, like, I'm not, I can't, I couldn't even bear to, like, mention, she had a couple of children, including a daughter who who was born deaf and with, like, severe developmental delays, apparently because she was working, she went to, like, visit some soldiers, (laughs) and uh, one of the fans who came to, like, to the event hadn't been properly, like, quarantined or, like, vaccinated against rubella, and so she got rubella from this fan, and her kid was born with, born deaf, and, yeah, like... (laughs) So she ended up, 20th Century Fox offered her a lead role in a movie in 1959, 
but she it was too stressful for her to to work. She did make a rel, uh, make a comeback in the 1960s, appearing in several films um, before abruptly retiring in 1964 um, with just a few. Um, television appearances in the ni- in 1969 and 1980. In 1958, she you know that year that she um, wasn't able to complete the film, she met Texas oil baron W. Howard Lee, who had been married to the actress Hedy Lamarr, um, and and was married at the time. So Lee and Lamarr divorced um, in 1960, and Lee and um, Jean Tierney married. Um, that same year, and they lived, you know, a quiet, reclusive life for the next 20 years until his death. Jean Tierney died of emphysema in 1991 in Houston, um, just before her 71st birthday. Well, at least her, her, you know, final years don't sound too terrible, but that seems like a really rough life. Yeah, it was, it started out not so badly, and then I, as I was, like, looking into her later years, I was like, I mean, her not-so-later years, even, her, like, midlife. <laughs> oh, God. Do you I have a better you. story? <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, yes. Like, Rex Harrison's life was less tragic, but also I found out more negative things about him that make me like him less as a person. No! So. I know, because I really like him in movies. Um, So, Rex Harrison was born Reginald Carey Harrison in 1908 in Hoyton, Lancashire. He was educated at Liverpool College, and he first appeared on the stage in Liverpool in 1924. Um, His acting career was interrupted by World War II, and he served in the Royal Air Force, reaching the rank of flight lieutenant. And then after that, he acted on the stage in the West End of London, um, and he had his big breakthrough role in the Terence Radigan play French Without Tears. Um, And basically he was... He did stage and film, but he was more primarily a stage actor. Um, And he... He continued to act on stage for most of the rest of his life, um, alternating in his appearances between London and New York. Um, He won his first Tony Award for his appearance as Henry VIII in Maxwell Anderson's play Anne of the Thousand Days. Um, And he basically became like a megastar and got his second Tony for playing Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. Um, which is, I think, what almost everyone knows him for. And he yeah. starred in that with Julie Andrews. Oh, yeah. I forgot that she was in it on the stage. I know. Uh, can you imagine seeing that, like, original cast? No. <laughs> um, simultaneously, while he was in all of these big plays, he made his film debut in The Great Game in 1930. And he was in a like a bunch of movies in the 30s and 40s at the Citadel, Night Train to Munich, Major Barbara, Blood Spirit, Anna and the King of Siam, which was, you know, a oh, right. role. Yeah, it's fine. Um, Has there ever been a version of that play that wasn't racist? (laughs) The sad thing is a lot of the music is really great. I still love the music to that show, but, like, you cannot see it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so much of Roger Schneider's time. 
I know. <laughs> he was best known for playing Henry Higgins in the 1964 film version of My Fair Lady. So he originated the role on Broadway and then he starred in the film. Um, and he won the Oscar for Best Actor for playing Henry Higgins. So at this point, he was like a huge star. And then he was in Dr. Doolittle in 1967. Oh, yeah. But because he was such a big star, he got to be very difficult to work with because he felt like he could make demands and like they had to do it because they needed to work with him. So he had a reputation for being like really terrible during the filming of Dr. Doolittle, demanding, um, and he would deliberately disrupt the set and production if things weren't going well, like with his contract or something like that. Oh my god. Um, there is one note that he deliberately moved his yacht in front of cameras during shooting in St. Lucia and refused to move it out of sight until they fixed his contract disputes. <laughs> yes. And he was even temporarily replaced at one point by Christopher Plummer because he was so uncooperative. I want more Christopher Plummer in my life. I know. I know. He is amazing. So have you seen My Fair Lady or Dr. Doolittle? Yeah, a long time ago, but yes, I have seen them. So like in his role as Henry Higgins, he he's not really a singer. He does that, like, sing-talking thing. Yeah, that Christopher Plummer... Well, actually, Christopher Plummer doesn't do it. Somebody else sang for him. Never mind. <laughs> but it was, like, so he talks on pitch to the music. Yeah. And basically, he was, like, one of the first big stars to do this, and now this is just what's commonly done by huh. actors who appear in musicals but don't really have the range to sing the roles. Oh, and he's, even though he wasn't really singing, for Talk to the Animals and Dr. Doolittle won the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1967. <laughs> and I won't go into too much detail about his personal life, except to say that he was married six times. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like Elizabeth Taylor over here. And, <laughs> and this is really sad. Like, the one thing I will say is that uh, when he was married to Lily Palmer, he had an affair with an actress named Carol Landis, and she committed suicide after spending the evening with Rex Harrison. But he didn't call the police right away or call a doctor. What? Because he, I, I guess he thought it would look bad or something, and that actually ended up turning into a big scandal uh, and damaging his career, and Fox ended his contract because of it. Wow. Well, good for Fox. Well, they probably just cared about the PR angle, but... I'm sure they yes. did, but whatever. <laughs> and another one of his wives also committed suicide, so... Uh, okay. Rex Harrison, you're unpleasant to work with, and you don't call the police when this person, your lover? I don't, I don't know. So that made me upset. <laughs> yeah, and, that's some, like, class A jerk behavior right there. Yeah. So he retired from film later in his career, but he continued to act on the stage up until the very end of his life. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, Buckingham Palace, in 1989, and he died of pancreatic cancer at his home in Manhattan in, on 
June 2nd, 1990, and he was 82. So, yeah, I mean, he had a very full and varied career, and he didn't just do comedy roles. He also did a lot of serious dramatic roles. A lot of singing-talking. Yes, a lot of singing-talking. You know, Dr. Doolittle, very serious. Uh, So should we get into the movie? Had you seen this before, Hillary? I hadn't seen it before. You had, though, right? Yes. So this movie, I I feel like the first time I saw it, it was just, like, on PBS one night when I was little uh-huh. or something, and I watched it, and I really liked it. But um, this is about, like, the level of scary movie I can handle. <laughs> no. And I distinctly remember in high school, like, having a friend over, and me and her and my mom tried to watch that Johnny Depp, Jack the Ripper movie. Because uh-huh. we were like, oh, it's a historical drama. We can handle this. And we're, like, within the first five minutes, they were, like, lobotomizing a woman against her will. And we were like, okay, let's turn this off and find something else (laughs) Halloween-y. And we put on The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, and it saved the evening. (laughs) We didn't have to hide under blankets while we were watching it. So I often, like, pull this movie out when it is, like, someone sort of wants to watch something spooky. But it's not at all, really. But that's kind of what I want. Yeah, there's a ghost in it, but it's not... It's not like a ghost movie. Yeah. It's a sea movie. Yes, which I like. Yeah. Also, what I have learned from this movie is that when I am down on my luck and don't have the money to pay rent, I will just write a swashbuckling sea (laughs) adventure and sell it to a publisher for enough money that I never have to work again in my entire life. Yeah, can we talk about the, like, financial logistics of this movie? Because, I mean, we're jumping ahead significantly, but she goes to the publisher, he's interested in the book, and she leaves the office without discussing terms, contract, advances, none of this stuff. And that is the last time that the money is mentioned, and the film follows her until she dies. Well, as an elderly woman. Yeah. I mean, she has to go back at some point to actually, like, sign the contract and get the $100 advance, but... But, yeah, she basically, like, she doesn't sign anything when she leaves the first time. She leaves her manuscript there. Oh, yeah, that was, like, the best part. She was like, I didn't write this, and I'm just gonna leave it here. Yeah. It's from my friend. My friend wrote it. Yeah. You know, if only that it, that would work that way, that you could just, like, tr- you, like, trust a publisher so much that you could take a swashbuckling book there and leave it there and just trust that you were going to make, evidently, thousands and thousands of dollars off of it. I mean, how is it possible that the royalties from that book would support her for the rest of her life? How? Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, part of it is that she bought the house, so if she, like, bought it outright, then she would only have to, like, pay for living expenses and also her maid, but... And taxes. And taxes, yeah. I mean, it's still, it comes out to being, like, thousands and thousands of dollars over the course of her life. Maybe someone... she had a child to support. Yeah, maybe, like, it begins in the early 20th century... Which I sort of liked in this movie that, like, there are several references to, that she makes to, you know, like, oh, it's the 20th century now, like, anything is possible. It's the 20th century. We don't have to, like, think about things that are silly or ridiculous, uh, except for, like, the silly and ridiculous idea that you would sell one novel and never have to work again. Who is she, J.K. Rowling? (laughs) 
Which, by the way, you know, we, we're both writers. Can we just disavow that idea, like, <laughs> right here on the podcast? Yeah. That even if you're an extremely successful writer and you publish books on the regs, you're still not making bags. Like, basically, just if you're, like, J.K. Rowling is, people use her as an example, that is... She is, like, the exception that proves the rule, which is, like, even if you're successful, you still need, like, a day job because you're not going to make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's, like, some great line where she says, I have to find it because I wrote it down because it was just so... She's like, oh, I need money. And Captain Greg is, like, his solution is, oh, we'll write a book. And her response is, oh, but that will take months which I was like, oh yeah, it only takes you a month, a couple of months to write a book. Of course, <laughs> it takes. Well, that that was the other unbelievable thing about the whole book plot line was that he dictates it to her off the top of his head, and somehow it is just a complete narrative. Like that's it. Like he's just like, and then write this, and like who who can dictate an entire book? Just from their thoughts. Yeah. Well, That's maybe not how it works. Maybe if you're a ghost and you can like see all of time and space. I don't know what the like theory of of ghosts is in this book or in this movie because she can see this ghost, but she doesn't care about like I don't know the ghost of her dead husband, who she apparently never loved. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> just thrown in there conveniently, it's fine. That anyway. So maybe he can like. See all of time and space, and so he doesn't have to like worry about like revising. Just like whatever comes out of his head is like perfectly formed. I don't know. Well, if that's the case, I feel like that needs to be more explicit. And yeah. Also, can we talk about the rules of this world in terms of being a ghost? <laughs> yes. Can we please? Because the I the fact that he's a ghost and is around, I'm totally fine with in the movie, up until the point where he is with her... In the train? ...the publishers. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. how, does he, how is he a ghost that, like, he doesn't... He, like, travels with her. Like, are, I, I thought he was supposed to be haunting the house. He's not just haunting her as a person. Yeah. Well, and if he's just haunting her as a person, why doesn't he, like, go with her everywhere she goes? And also, why does he spend so much time hanging around the house? Like, if he can go anywhere, why is he at the house? I don't know. Yeah, that was the part where I was like, you are breaking the rules that seem to be implied as established within the world of this movie. Yes. <laughs> Wrong. But beyond that, like, I don't mind that he's a ghost. And I I liked uh, Mrs. Muir's character up until the point where she sort of falls in love with George Saunders. But yeah, she's a very strong person, and... There's a lot of people in her life trying to tell her what she can mm-hmm. and can't do, and she's resolute to her own will the whole time. And then yep. it doesn't seem to break until she encounters Uncle Nettie. Yeah. And he's, like, at first I thought, like, oh, he's coming after her and she's rebuffing him, so that's good, but then it becomes apparent that she is rebuffing him, but actually she likes it. And you know how when women say no to men, they, like, really want them to keep coming, like, way harder and just keep, like, following them? Uh Uh-huh. So, like, this is a good example of how that's successful. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of works. Well, and it's it's sort of, like, the the generous, not feminist, but, like, I guess, I you know, part of me wants to look at it as, you know, she knows that she's in love at that point with, Captain Greg, the ghost, 
but she also knows that he's a ghost and she's alive. And so she can't actually, like, be with the ghost. And so, like, this is the next best thing, this, like, living man. I think she says something about how he's real. And the, the maid looks at her when she says this and is like, he's real? But, like, that's, to her, like, the biggest selling point for him is that he's alive. Even though he he's a jerk. He made me really, un- yeah, he's a total jerk. He made me really uncomfortable watching it. Like, the whole scene when she first goes to the publisher's office and he just follows her. And the entire time he's doing everything he can to encroach on her personal space. Yeah. Not and a good I guy. Just, no, I did not like that. And then at one point later in the movie, he says, even if you forbid me, I will see you. Like, basically, there's nothing you could do to keep... And, and and he also is secretly watching her while she is... Bathing? Swimming, yeah. And then paints her, which, like, for that time period would have been considered highly inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah, well, and somebody... I think the maid says that. That just that it's, like, creepy that he was painting her while she was swimming. Yeah. So, his character was terrible. We're kind of jumping around, but at the point when she discovers that he's married, at when she goes to his house, his wife's reaction was so weird. I know. She just was like, yeah, this happens all the time. What do you mean it happens all the time? Yeah, she's like, uh, it's happened before. Won't you stay for tea? <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> no, what's wrong with you, lady? Well, what I what I appreciate about the whole sequence or a couple of scenes with George Saunders is that it sort of it shows her acting silly, which is in contrast to how she acts in the first part of the movie, where she is so shrewd about renting the house, and so you know she's when the ghost shows up, she's kind of a badass, you know. By calling out the ghost for scaring all the women who come. And she doesn't back down from, like, making a bargain with with the ghost, even though the ghost breaks the bargain, his end of the bargain, because he's not supposed to haunt Anna. And we find out at the end that he's, you know, had long conversations with her, but whatever. You know, and she starts saying blast and blasted um, the way that the captain does. And, like, even though she ends up, like, forming, even though she lives on, you know, this novel that she didn't actually write and, like, seems implausible, but she's at least, like, standing on her own two feet for most of the movie, except for this moment where, she, or this, like, series of scenes where she's being ridiculous about George Saunders, who isn't even that good-looking anyway. No, and, I mean, he was a nice contrast to the dead Captain guy? Greg, because <laughs> he was so foppish, yeah. And, like, oily, and and the captain was very, like, manly and gruff, so I thought that worked nicely. I mean, the more generous reading that I could take on that part of the plot was that, like, she says right up from the beginning that she's basically never had a life of her own, mm-hmm. and she didn't love her first husband, and maybe she just wanted to, like, have that experience of... Like, this is what it's like to be in love with a real man and be romanced. Yeah. And, oh, I like that. Like, like, it didn't really go... Like, it almost reminded me of um, Mary and the Librarian in the music yes. band. Please tell me all she... about Mary and the Librarian in the music band. <laughs> <laughs> the way that... Well, you know more about this movie than I do, but she basically was like, yeah, like, I know that you 
are going to take advantage yeah. of me and like then leave, but I want to have this life experience, so I'm taking it. I'm making the choice to participate in this with full knowledge. Yes, yes. So, which, by the way, another movie that we need to add. Yes, please. <laughs> Listen, we if we do that, I will just recite the entire movie on. <laughs> <laughs> so we need an extra long podcast. That's right. That Two-parter. <laughs> Speaking of men who aren't singing, talking their lines, who actually sing, I guess. Yes. Uh. <laughs> well, so I have to say that one of the reasons I like this movie, this movie is, like, imperfect in a lot of ways, and it's not like the captain is always great. Like, you pointed out that he lied about not appearing to Anna, and he says a couple of, like, kind of nasty Things. lines about women. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not great. But this movie falls into, like, one of the, like, love story types that I am super into, which is a romance where it's, like, completely inappropriate and that the people can't be together. I like romances with, with that end with them not together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So... This one is great because he's a ghost. Like, even if they're in love, there's... I mean, at the very end of the movie, she dies and stuff. But basically, as a living human being, she is unable to be with this person. Yeah. It's sweet, I think, too, that he, like, recognizes that he, like, he can't... They can't be together, and so he goes away. He thinks that he's wrapping things up by telling her when she's asleep that he... That this has all been a dream, and she's dreamt it all, and... You know, he's not, like, he's not gaslighting her. He's, like, doing the opposite of gaslighting her by saying, like, you know, this, you have to forget all of this because it's, you have to move on and you have to live your life. Um, yeah. And, of course, she doesn't, really. You know, I I appreciate that about him, that he's, like, this, you're, like, you can't live your life if I'm in it, so I'm going to go away. Yeah, I mean, that was an example of him really putting his needs second because I'm sure he would have preferred to just, spend time with her yeah and he's i mean i don't know what ghost time is like i don't know if that was a long time for him as a ghost or not but he did stay away yeah well and he said something about how like time is i forget what exactly he said but you know he said something about time not being a real thing for him that it like you know it's sort of that classic like you know a second is five years and five years is a second kind of thing what was your take like her the rest of her life and how, like, so she, you know, gets terribly humiliated by the Saunders character. And at that point, the captain's gone. Right. And it basically plays out showing, like, that the rest of her life is just lived out quietly in this house until she dies. Right. Quietly, and her daughter, like, gets married and has kids of her own. And there's sort of this, like, ongoing theme in the generations of, like, sea captains and, and like, ocean dwellers or whatever. I mean, and she has this faithful servant. She lives in that house forever. It, like so sad to me and that like that part of the storyline is the kind of storyline that I usually don't like at all because it seems so like overwhelmingly sad that like here is this character who like can't ever like fulfill whatever full potential that she might have because the person that she wants to be with is dead and she can't even like like she, she might not even like consciously know that but, like, in order for her to, like, end up being with the person she wants to be with, even if it's just a, like, a subconscious want, um, is dead. So she has to, like, slog through her whole life to get to the point where she wants to be. Yeah, I thought that, 
part was very sad too and i was watching it with mike and at that point he like laid his head down in sadness yeah like i mean she it it because i i was thinking she's maybe like 30 at the beginning of the movie and it goes all the way till she looks like she's like in her 70s or 80s yeah she says towards the beginning of the movie here i am nearly halfway through life with nothing to show for it like so, she, you know, she yeah, she's probably thirty, and she ends up being seventy. It reminds me of the book, The Time Traveler's Wife. Do you yes. know this? I I have not read it. I did see the movie. In the in the book, this is a major spoiler, I guess. The time traveler dies, and he dies in his wife's life, like maybe when she's about like thirty or thirty five. He she knows that she will see him again. But she doesn't know when. And so she spends her entire life anticipating that she might see him again. But she doesn't actually see him again until she's 85 and about to die. And then, you know, he sees her and and that that's it. Then she dies. And then she knows that that's the last time. It also reminds me of, like, in Doctor Who, there's a whole storyline with this character that the doctor is supposed to be married to, but they uh, see each other in a reverse timeline. So one of them is going forward in their relationship and the other one is going backwards in the relationship. And at one, at some point, he kisses her and he's like, oh, this is the first time we've ki- we've kissed, which makes her realize that that's the last time they're ever going to kiss. And so she has Aww. to live out the rest of her life knowing that they're never going to kiss again. Those storylines slay me because, like... It is sad. It's so sad that you would be, like, separated from the person you love. And also, you know, it also kills me just to, like, the idea of this, like, first husband that she had that she, like, had a kid with and, like, had a whole relationship with. And then he died and she doesn't care. I mean, she cares a little bit, but he wasn't her great love. And that's just, like, also kind of depressing, too. Like, what would it be like to be that guy? (laughs) I know. I mean, no wonder he doesn't haunt her because <laughs> she'd be like, get away from me. Well, I mean, the the one thing that makes it kind of nice at the very end is that when she does die, the captain is waiting for her. And she said, like, I'm so tired. And then he said, you'll never be tired again. And she, like, gets up and they walk out together. And I was like, that, I don't, I mean, I know it's corny, but I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. Well, but then, like, right before that, she had this, like, snapping conversation with her, you know, the maid that has lived with her her whole life. And so she has this, like, she snaps at the maid. The maid leaves to, like, go get milk or whatever. She sits there. She dies. And then she passes the maid like, on the stairs as she's going away with, with Captain Greg, and you know that, the like, she's up there, she's about to discover the body, and she's, like, you know, it's about to become the worst day of her life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that maid needed to retire. Yeah. <laughs> but she looked like she was older than Mrs. Muir in the beginning, and then in the end, she's still serving her. Yeah. And I was like... How is this still happening? Like, you should be more decrepit than she is. Yeah. Well, maybe she's not decrepit simply because she has been serving. She's been working the whole time. She's the only one who's been working. But doesn't she deserve to rest? (laughs) You're such a socialist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just drop dead in the saddle, Martha. That's what they want. (laughs) 
I mean, in a way, this, in terms of that, like, type of movie I like where they can't be together, this has, like, a better outcome, because most of the movies like this that I watch, it's just, like, you know, they can just never be together, and that's it. Yeah. (laughs) That's how it ends. So at least in this, they, you know, then they have eternity. Right. Right. They don't have, you know, 40 short years, but they do have the rest of their lives. The rest of their, their immortal lives. Yeah. You know, I think this is one of the only movies we've watched in, like, a very long time where I actually thought it was super romantic in some ways. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, there are a lot of problems with it, but overall, it, yeah, it was romantic. And even, like, the George Saunders character, who's creepy, I think he's, like, we're meant to think that he's creepy, and we're meant to not like him, and so when it turns out that he is, in fact, creepy and not a good guy, it's, like, sort of a relief. Like, we were right. (laughs) yeah that's true and i think they did a good job of foreshadowing it by having like everyone else in the movie not like him Mm -hmm. as well (laughs) because i I was trying it had been a while since i watched this movie and i was trying to remember what happened with him and i was like oh he yeah he's just a terrible person who actually has a second life yep yeah checks out (laughs) yep He's a jerk. It's fine. Unrelated to anything, but I have to say that I really liked the dog, the little terrier in the movie. Yes, of course you did. (laughs) Who never... was really cute. I mean, the dog never noticed the ghost, did he? Well, I think in this first scene where the ghost appears, he kind of looks up like someone's there, but then they never address that again. Yeah. So much for dogs having, like, extra sensory senses. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's usually my defense against being haunted when I'm home alone and scared, is that I'm like, oh, well, if the pets think everything's yep. cool, then I'm fine. So yeah. if this is saying the pets don't know, then I have no defense. Yeah. Um, this is just fiction. It's fine. The ghosts in real life <laughs> will be detected by the real-life dogs. <laughs> <laughs> What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Anything else before we talk about costumes? I don't think so. Should we talk about the costumes? Yes. I was really taken, this is not really costumes, but I was really taken with all of her hairstyles. Just her hair in general. Yeah, I agree. Her hair was beautiful and looked appropriate for an early 20th century setting. Yeah. I really liked her bathing costume. Yes. I thought it was lovely. Those are coming back. And the cape that she put on or the like bathing cover up thing. Yeah, I want one of those. Um, how about the cool bathing houses where you walk in, disrobe, walk out the other side, and then there's a rope so you don't get pulled away by the current? Yeah, that sounds great. I think every, everybody needs that. Yeah, I liked that a lot. I love it. I also liked the white dress she was wearing around the same time in the movie that was more, like, gauzy and summery looking. Mm -hmm. I was not sure what I thought about the outfit she wore to the publishers with the feather hat. Yeah. What did you think of that one? I, yeah. I guess it seemed like she was trying to portray a woman who was, like, put together and could handle her own affairs, but was, also had this sort of, like, whimsicalness to it. 
I mean, like, the feather sort of did a lot of things. It was both, like, professional and whimsical. Yeah, I mean, part of me kind of liked it because it was so outrageous, but I also thought it just, I don't know if it really suited her. Yeah, that was right before she met George Saunders, right? Yes, and he actually commented on her hat at one point. Then probably we're not meant to like it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he liked it. Yes, I think you're right. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. What did you think about the Bechtel test? I have been thinking about it because there are are a lot of conversations she has with her daughter. I mean, there actually, there aren't a lot of interactions that she has with her daughter. Natalie Wood isn't in the movie very often. And then when she, her daughter grows up, most of those conversations are either about the ghost, but in a romantic kind of way, or about her new beau. Um, yeah. And some of the conversations with the maid are about the George Saunders character, but some of them are just about the house. So I think technically it passes the Bechdel test, but I don't know. What do you think? I think it passes. I mean, the... The very first scene in the movie... Oh, right! ...is, like, her talking with her in-laws about moving away, and there's no relationship to speak of at that point, except, like, they say, what about, you know, your dead husband's memory at one point, but... Yeah, and she specifically says this is not about him. This is about, you know, she says, I'm not leaving him, I'm leaving you, which I love. (laughs) Yes. And there, I mean, you're right that there were relationship conversations, but... She has a lot of conversations with Martha that are just, like, talking about their new life and stuff. So, I mean, I don't know if I would say it's, like, 100% a feminist movie because there are, like, definitely issues with it. But I think it passes. Yeah, well, and it certainly, there are certain certainly moments, like you, you said earlier, where she, she sort of asserts her own right to be in the world and to, like, direct her own life and that she wants to, like, be in charge of her own life. Which I think outweighs, you know, any, like, relationship stuff that might overtake, you know, the plot at some at some point. Yeah. I mean, the central driving force of the movie, despite these other relationships, is basically that she's, like, starting a new life of her own and trying to build a life for herself. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, and that, like, ultimately the ghost is like, I don't want to stop you from having your own life. And yeah. so he, like, patiently, like you know, walks away so that she can have her own life. Can I also say that I just, I love that it's never explicitly stated between them that they're in love with each other. Yes, but oh my I, God. I think all that she says is like, we've gotten ourselves into a pickle. And I'm yes. like, this is wonderful. Like, my Victorian sensibilities are yes. <laughs> so happy right now. Yeah, I do love that they never, they don't ever have to, like, talk about it, which I think is a sign of a good relationship, but they, they just, like are on the same page, and, like, they talk about it, like, after she's dead. Yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty great. So, I guess it, I mean, the funny thing is that this movie was way more bechdel than The Women. Yes. Yeah, that is funny, isn't it? (laughs) When The Women is an entirely female cast, but they just never talk about anything except men. Except men. (laughs) Proof. That men can be part of the feminist project, too. (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. 
We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So what about the social justice? I guess, I mean, there's there's a small moment where she's about to be destitute and she has to think about what she's going to do and... You know, and the ghost like swoops in and is like, you know, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make the, you're gonna write this book. That seems, it's not really social justicey, but it like it reminded me of like communities helping each other out or whatever. Although she had those shares dividends from the gold mine, and gold mines are just mm-hmm. like not good, <laughs> especially yeah. at, especially at that time. They're just like yeah, rife with with social issues, so not good. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there really was much of a social justice message in this movie. Not that it was, like, there wasn't, like, a terrible message at the other end, really, but it was just kind of not concerned very much with, like, society yeah. as a whole. Yeah it, was, yeah, it wasn't really about society as a whole. It was about this one person. I mean, the only message that I would say that was not social justice I mean, there were some, there were definitely some like misogynist things said <laughs> that was not social justice Yeah. But also just like Martha just working forever and <laughs> we need we need to do something for Martha. Yeah, when does it end for Martha? I guess you know her mistress dies so then she's released from what is apparently indentured servitude. <laughs> <laughs> Although she says at some point that she has money say, set by that she would give to, you know, to Mrs. Muir, and Mrs. Muir says, oh, no, keep your money. You know, that's that's your money. I'm like, but you're, you're the, you're, the, like, what, what, how are you going to pay her if you don't have money? Also, it would be hilarious if Martha gave her the money, and then she had to pay her with the same money, and they just kept doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Meanwhile, I hope she has the, like, presence of mind to, like, charge her interest. <laughs> yes. So what rating would you give this movie? I think I would give it a four because... Oh, wow. Yeah, I think I would give it a four because, like, overall, I came away from the movie feeling like I had had a really good movie experience. Like, I was entertained. It it made me think about, like, oh, what is this theory of the afterlife that's in this movie? You know, there were certainly uh, some problems with, like, portrayal of women here and there and, you know, the... The, like the dynamics and the romance. Uh, yeah, overall, I say a four. What would you? That's a yay. Would, That's good. What would you give it? <laughs> I think you're giving it a slightly higher one than I would, and I am the one who brought this movie to the table. I would give it a three and a half. Okay. Um, it has great rewatchability. Like I like revisiting it. There are certain parts of it that are harder to get through. Basically, my favorite part is like the first half where. She and the ghost are just falling in love. Yeah, and, and like, having all these, like, conversations back and forth. Yes, and then the second half, I think, is harder to love as much. Yeah. But overall, I just like it, and I, I like the tone of it, and the setting is really beautiful, the music is beautiful. I think it's just it's just a nice movie. Like, I agree with you that when I watch it, I'm, like satisfied and Mm -hmm. I like experience a lot of emotions and I enjoy it so I think more people should watch this movie I wish it was more well known yeah yeah I mean I think that the thing that sets this movie apart from some of the movie other movies we've watched recently is that I would watch it again 
Um, Yay. Yeah. So I converted one person. (laughs) Um, What's our next movie, Emily? Our next movie is His Girl Friday. Yay. Which I'm really, really excited for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. A return to Cary Grant. And Razzle and Russell. We can never have too much Cary Grant or Razzle and Russell. Agreed. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day. Thank you.